This is about groups. So how someone who's more a red or more a blue feels about the other side. And, and this can be very dangerous when those feelings get so extreme, the other side is seen as completely evil and stupid and the enemy. And then people are willing to do whatever it takes to defeat the other side, even if you know democratic norms are be, be damned, the other person's emotions be damned and their livelihood, right? It's just fight, fight, fight. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we're talking with James Cohn, right? Mm-hmm. Cohen? Cohn? Cohen, Cohn. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it sounds good. Two syllables. You, you, you got it. So he's basically a depolarization strategist. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us what that means? Right? Sure. Hello. Yeah, I am a James Cohen, a strategy, a depolarization strategist. So what this means is I'm a, a strategy consultant and I try to figure out what can be done strategically to reduce polarization. And then I also work with certain groups in the field, especially uh, Better Angels. Yep. And if you recognize Better Angels, it's because uh, if you listen to last season, we had uh, Luke from last season was on was from Better Angels. Yes. So we talk about, we've talked about our stance on polarization in the past. And basically, I would say the TLDR for what we well, I'll speak for myself. I feel like the TLDR for what my stance is really like we, you know, definitely need to be talking to each other more. Obviously, I've been doing stuff for Better Angels, so I'm kind of on board with the whole notion of trying to deal with depolarization or deal with polarization rather. Mm-hmm. And so some things that I was thinking about in terms of stuff that we could talk about it to like kind of take it to another level mm-hmm. it's just sort of like what's what's kind of the end goal right we don't necessarily want like a nation of centrists right Correct. it's not like you're ever going to get people mm-hmm. to just agree with each other right, right. <laughs> we like we want and it's good to have a diversity of opinion like we want to be able to have people who are disagreeing with each other that's like the beauty of having such a you know diverse country sure. right mm-hmm. yeah. and so my stance on polarization is really in reaction to the radical left Right. <laughs> okay. Because like I went to Swarthmore, which is a super liberal social justice lefty school. And there was it did feel really uncomfortable, like in the sense that there was definitely a party line, right? And mm-hmm. there was a lot of aggressive I would say bullying of people who didn't toe that line. What well, I, I guess you tell me what is your what kind of bubbles are you most familiar with? You know what I mean? I mean some background. I, I grew up here in the, in the D.C. area. I went to, to college at, at Princeton, then lived in Houston for eight years, and I've been back here for the last two or so mm-hmm. uh, years. Uh, you know, uh, Princeton and the city of Houston are, are, I would say, kind of center-left places. So it's not like the Swarthmore that, that you've experienced at all. I, I didn't have any kind of strong reaction um dc that could be more prevalent ironically sometimes i talk less about politics here than i did in houston because in houston we'd just be like oh man wow there's someone else who cares about politics like, we kind of found each other in dc it's like oh you're just another yeah, person it's, who lives it's the baseline everyone just cares about politics <laughs> um yeah i went to north carolina state which is like i feel like similar to what you were saying about princeton sort of um 
maybe like center left, more moderate. There's, I mean, forty percent of states' population does identify as some form of Republican, hmm. um, which is like I think ex- expected for a like southern state school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that has also helped me like shape a viewpoint about like being pro polarization, but not with like sort of the like abhorrence for the radical left that Isabel has. Do you want to do you want to tell the story about the, the the woman that got bullied on your school? Oh yeah, there was this one woman who wrote this article in the newspaper, which I ha- I wasn't on the newspaper at the time I graduated, but I was like an editor of that newspaper when mm-hmm. I was at school, and she wrote an article talking about how basically saying that poor students should be thankful that there are rich students attending the school because they're subsidizing their education, right? And there was this really like huge backlash against that to the point where she was getting death threats like she was getting people messaging her just like you know just complete ad hominems and she was like basically bullied to the point where she was like seriously considering suicide you know and that I think even, you know, after the fact, everyone at Swarthmore recognizes that it was that extreme. But in the moment, I think everyone, there was absolutely this mob mentality about it, you know, of like, let's all just like gang up on this person because she didn't say the right thing about class relations. And there's all these people being like, you know, like, you know, I grew up homeless. And like, who is this woman to say, you know, just like, just there was a lot of vitriol around mm-hmm. the entire mm-hmm. incident. And it's, I would say, a pretty textbook, you know, example of the kind of stuff that Better Angels is trying to deal with. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it, it's it's true. So I guess what it, as some background on, on polarization. So there, there's two kind of main types of polarization. Uh, and it often gets conflated and kind of confused. So there's issue polarization that's on a, some kind of political spectrum, how far away our people, and we see this in Congress. And then there's something known as affective polarization, uh, which is how do these different groups, and let's focus on groups, feel about one another. I focus much more on the affective polarization. So yes, it's okay if someone has relatively, uh, you know, uh, you know, views that are you know toward the edges of the political spectrum within reason, uh, but one doesn't have to loathe the other side or right, gang up on them. People are going to be tribal, and they are going to join into groups, but tribalism doesn't necessitate bullying or antagonizing someone to the point that they're thinking of committing suicide. Why don't you just lay out your thoughts around polarization and you know what you think basically the issue is, and then later we can talk about like what, what do we think are ways to address the issue. Yeah, sure. So as I said, I focus on what's known as affective polarization, which from a marketing standpoint is terrible, right? I mean, like who's going to remember affective polarization? And no one really knows what affect. Yeah, you know, like, right. What, what is affect? You know, so emotional polarization, you know, if we want to give it a little name, like AFPO, I was trying to think, you know, you know like <laughs> NOMA or something. Let's give it a little like, it's a little easier to say AFPO. And yeah, so this is group Oriented. A lot of times we think in, in terms of polarization in a very intellectual way, this is more emotional. Often we think like one-on-one individuals, this is about groups. So how someone who's more a red or more a blue feels about the other side. 
And, and this can be very dangerous when those feelings get so extreme, the other side is seen as completely evil and stupid and the enemy. And then people are willing to do whatever it takes to defeat the other side, even if you know democratic norms are be, be damned, the other person's emotions be damned and their livelihood, right? It's just fight, fight, fight. But it's important to understand what exactly are the emotions that we're trying to deal with here because you know just vitriol in general okay that's problematic but it's not very clear like what we what we care about uh and so there's this amazing emotional wheel that kind of allows us to think do we care more about anger and rage or do we care more about like disgust and loathing and so we can go into it more but i pretty strongly feel that we need to focus more on disgust and loathing uh, of the other side that anger can actually be really useful when well targeted right when, when there's concerns that some kind of policy isn't being addressed and it's focused and it's like i want change it's very active whereas loathing just puts the other side down and just sees them as kind of like nothing and then if there's any power differential you get resentment which is a huge issue uh here you know in in america today and also kind of on the other side of loathing uh in, with this emotional framework. On the other side is trust and admiration. So a society that has very little trust can barely function, and that is basically the antithesis of loathing. So as we move away from loathing, we can build more trust and have a you know, more cohesive society. I use something known as Pluchik's wheel, which is this wheel of emotions, and it gives these kind of four uh, axes. And so the other side of, of rage, rage and anger is terror so i'm not trying to move from rage to terror it's right. just this hor horrendous circle whereas there very much is a clear direction from loathing all the way up to trust and, and admiration uh and we can see a society kind of moving in a positive direction going in in some way forward rather than just kind of spiraling i think that the distinction between like afpo and ishpo <laughs> is really interesting because it seems like for you that's a really important distinction they seem like pretty sort of interconnected to me so can you talk a little bit on like why that's so important for you to make that distinction sure so a lot of it comes down to what are we going to do about this how are we going to address a problem if one thinks that issue polarization is the the issue probably it's like release a lot of like white papers from think tanks and teach people about issues it's probably fairly cognitive with affective polarization the solutions do tend to be more emotional and and probably when people uh, have less afpo you know feel better about the other side issue polarization probably does diminish somewhat because right now it's sort of like they have that view and sometimes it's a it's an incorrect view of what the other side thinks right. i have this view and there's no way that i could have any overlap with you know those horrible people over there and so it can create this kind of increasing polarization because you just keep seeing the other side as worse and worse and worse from kind of an emotional that emotions are kind of pulling the sides apart so do you agree with the idea that the the idea of afpo or um yeah, effective polarization has gotten sort of more extreme in the past, whatever, five, six years, whatever. Yes. And so we have data specifically about that. Mm -hmm. And so the, the kind of quintessential metric is this 
thermometer. And so this, this thermometer uh, that was originally asked in the 1970s, so imagine any kind of group or person or thing. I mean, it could be a dog, it could be a, an individual. In this case, uh, thinking about just a question where think about Republicans or think about Democrats. The warmest you could feel toward this group is 100. The coldest you could feel toward them is zero. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, it was a little under 50. The high 40s, by about 2000, it was around 40. And by 2016, it was in the low to mid 20s. The most common answer used to be 50. The most common answer now is zero. So it's very clear that things have gotten worse. There's, and there's other data we could go through if we, if we want to. Yeah. Um, and I think the bright idea that pops into like everyone's head is social media. Is that the culprit? Or a combination of that with sort of interesting, like or like political figures that we're seeing popping up, or is it just because we're like more in tune with what with what people think and feel and can talk to people really easily? There are a couple articles about this. Uh, the president of Better Angels has fourteen reasons why polarization has happened. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's kind of like my intellectual idol in this space, has uh, one with ten reasons, but in terms of what I can actually impact, I think it's it's fairly narrow and it is pretty media focused. So one is you know, social media and all sorts of echo chambers and the more extreme people tend to, to post and they tend to post more emotional content and that tends to go more viral. So all, all sorts of reasons there. Then there's partisan media. You know, this is kind of the Fox News, MSNBCs of the world. But then also even just kind of generic news, even done very well, for those who care about it, they often see, they see more of it than they probably did a couple of decades ago. You'd have a physical paper, you'd look at the news, and then the rest of your day, you know, news isn't hitting you all the time. Whereas here with our phones, you just see the news over and over. And news, not that it, it just tends to emphasize division. Or not emphasize, but it, that's what's newsworthy. I mean, you know, uh, just talking about positive things and happy stories, you know, they're, they're, they're nice, but, but most news are about, you know, there's some, some contentious topic and, you know, this side thinks that and that side thinks this. And, you know, most people feel like they're on one side or the other. So it's kind of like, what are those other people doing? And that just becomes top of mind. I do want to mention the start of Nate Silver's book. He makes a comparison between today and kind of, and, and the Gutenberg uh, Bible. And, and he says, the Gutenberg Bible, the printing press, uh, you know, it was this amazing event, invention before you had monasteries with some written text and that was it. Like mm -hmm. you could barely get anything. And suddenly all these people had all this knowledge and we had the enlightenment. But what did a lot of people produce? They produced all this invective, not about, well, about the Protestants or about the Catholics. And you had the Thirty Years' War. And he's like, well, in terms of a democratization or an opening up, uh, of, of different voices, many of which can be very antagonistic, very aggressive. What we have today might be most similar to this, you know, 500 years ago when suddenly, right, it was just opened up and suddenly all this hate just started being spewed in every direction. Yeah. I feel like the, the abundance is a big contributor because it's completely revolutionized the way we consume many of this, right? Like, um, I don't know when or if, like, I don't know when, like, uh, pundits on Fox News or MSNBC started becoming sort of, like, so 
um, invictive, uh, like purposefully. Um, but I feel like now it's like they're invictive and also we can share it on Facebook and now, you know, millions of people see it and it's completely amplified way more than it would have been, you know, X amount of years ago. Yeah. So Jonathan Haidt points to kind of the 1990s as a time when a lot of these, uh, kind of issues that are causing problems today kind of got their start. Fox news and MSNBC both started in 1996. The, the internet started in, in the early 1990s. Uh, and so now we're seeing some effects. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly when, you know, kind of they, they turned, but I mean, there were, you know, there were shows like Crossfire and I don't know, was it Hannity and Combs or something, uh, in terms of hit, uh, Sean Hannity's start. So, you know, the, it became clear that, that some degree of, of anger and fighting, uh, sells, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, can, be, it can be exciting. And, and so the, the business models in many cases support that kind of content. Right. And that's not something that's, that's really a human nature thing. That's not really something that you can just change very easily. Correct. So, I mean, I'm curious about like, you know, if the root cause, you know, it's a lot of this is coming from the media, you know, it very much your job very much seems to be like fighting media with media. Sure. So I'm concerned about loathing, resentment and distrust. And in order to address those, I often focus on messages and stories that emphasize commonality, some degree of equality or respect and then a commitment to actually being trustworthy. Uh, and then it's a question of, well, okay, those messages might be nice, but how are they going to be heard? What are the right megaphones in society that could get those messages out? And possibly, is, is there a way that some of these messages that are so divisive now, maybe they could be less strong or less prevalent in some way? And so that this is those are the kinds of questions that I think about. And I think there are, are a lot of, opportunities throughout society for groups or institutions and individuals with audiences already to promote the right kind of messages and stories where we can see in most cases what we have in common what we share mm -hmm. and go into exactly where i think we, we do have things in common and, and what we do share uh in terms of media itself sometimes that's the hardest uh, topic just because something caused or primarily cause an issue does not necessarily mean that the solution has to run exactly through them, right? Mm -hmm. The solutions can go in other directions. But if we're talking about the solutions directly through different kinds of media channels, uh, with social media, there can be kind of depolarizing content that gets spread more, right? I focus on emotions, right? Most of the emotions that a lot of these uh, divisive messages have used have been anger and, and rage, but humans have more emotions that are powerful than just that. Mm -hmm. And so tapping into all these other emotions through different kind of stories and messages that show how we're alike can be spread. And then there, there's the potential for altering the algorithms to some extent. Uh, and so if you're a listener and you like, uh, to 
to think about algorithms. If you work at Facebook. (laughs) Well, well, yeah, or left Facebook. Right. I mean, however, uh, who's ever out there, I have some volunteers now that are really researching these topics about what is possible. And then in terms of news media, I mean, again, we're trying to think about lots of ideas uh, in in the space. One possibility is uh, that wouldn't affect the business model too much. Stories do tend to be divisive, but we can talk about the commonalities or a journalist can talk about the commonalities as well. So this side thinks something, that side thinks something else, but they both want security but they both want economic growth. They just have very different ways of trying to reach a similar goal. And we can emphasize that similarity and encourage journalists to present something that way that I don't think uh, hurts the business model too much. Although if it affected the clickbait headlines, then yes, it would. So can you give us an example of like, okay, instead of using using the media to trigger fear and loathing, right? Which is very, you know, lucrative and clickbaity. What what is the alternative to that? Heineken actually had a, a pretty good ad in this space. Mm-hmm. It was like two people and they, they start chatting and they're they're given instructions or doing things and then like they see that they're shown videos and they're like totally different. And then oh do you want to continue, you know, over this they they've built a bar and so then they do you want to continue this discussion over a drink, uh, over a Heineken? And so then they're, they're kind of together. But no, so it's, it's a pretty good ad in this space. And I, I can see a lot of other companies, especially that produce items that, that people use when they're communicating with each other or to bring people together. So to me, an airline would actually be a really good target because we can imagine with families, that's often where... Some people have some of the largest divides with people that they do communicate with, but they can love each other. There's a long history of caring for one another, but they voted differently. Mm -hmm. And so we can really emphasize this over over Thanksgiving or the holidays about all these aspects that tie people together, except for this difference, but they're willing to fly halfway across the country to see this person, even if they didn't vote the same way. And so that's the kind of emotional messaging that where I could see, you know, a a major player having a role Mm -hmm. in this. And then, you know, we could talk about large congregations. I mean, I was in Houston. I lived a couple miles from Joel Osteen's church. (laughs) So, you know, the Houston Rockets used to play there and now it's a church. So, you know, if if he can say a message that reaches 10,000 people on a Sunday, I mean, I consider that a win. Yeah. Yeah. I think sort of similar to that, there is this like Vox series, I think it's Vox, um, that is on YouTube where it puts people of like similar demographics, but on either end of the political scale. And they, it's like panel style with a moderator and they just like ask them all questions and they don't seem to, um, so for example, it'd be like LGBTQ people um, like on the left and the right talk about abortion or like preventative health care or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think this is sort of like getting at the idea that you were maybe talking about, which is sort of like taking advantage of the like clickbaitiness of it, like of the like possible virality of wanting to see people clash, quite frankly. Um, but at, but they're also like 45 minute long videos throughout which for me, at least I was like, oh, yeah, these are like these are humans. Right. And to be fair, I'm, I'm someone that sort of is already like trying to seek out content that I might not like typically watch. Mm-hmm. But I think that 
I was watching those and I was like really like kind of pleasantly surprised by how not once I was in the video and once I was like consuming the media, I was like, oh, like this isn't this isn't as like sort of screamy as I thought it was going to be. It's cool from the standpoint of depolarization, a video probably wouldn't be set up like that. Mm, why not? Because if I'm trying to emphasize commonality, that's saying, oh, they do have a they do have some similarity. Let's not focus on that really at all mm-hmm. or very little. And let's just focus on what they have. how they're different although the questions may show some overlap probably somewhat balanced Uh, i tend to be pretty focused and want content that that tends to be pretty digestible where it's clear that there's commonality uh i appreciate those who can go through you know 45 minutes or a couple hours and then at the end say oh yeah they're a little more similar they're both kind of human but we can make a message that people are human and have commonalities in a matter of a few seconds right and it have similar emotional resonance and people don't have to actively click on something so trying to reach you know, the greatest number of people and have them be emotionally impacted mm-hmm. in the strategies that you're thinking about on a day-to-day basis is it the kind of thing where you are mainly thinking about individuals as the primary agents or when you're talking about you know emphasizing commonality are you mainly are you talking about journalists or are you talking about like people on Instagram who are influencers or something like who, what, what are the agents that you're thinking about in that capacity? Excellent. So, so there are some individuals and then there are some institutions. Yeah. So individuals, right. Could be anyone, the, the larger the audience, the better, but people can, can say, you know, good things to, to write that their next door neighbor, their, their, their friends. Uh, you know, I, I see your value as you as a person, I, you have dignity things like that and it can uh, expand but often i I think about people encouraging large institutions to spread messages so there are there are businesses there's actually a lot of overlap between advertising and the kinds of emotional messaging that that i'm talking about uh, religious congregations and sermons Uh, again there's a lot of overlap Uh, tv and movie representation there there honestly aren't Many that I know of uh, positive portrayals of, of people who would typically have voted for President Trump uh, on TV and in, in the movies. There's potentials with social algorithm changes and creating content for them. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of these kind of large institutions that I think could be activated to do something. It's not that they're necessarily changing. It's sort of being aware that they actually have this power at least from my perspective, to make positive change. And it's really, there hasn't been much or any in the way, any uh, attempt to engage them to, to move forward. Yeah. I mean, there's some part of me, and maybe it's overly cynical, right? Mm-hmm. But that looks at, you know, it does seem to me like it's so inherent and maybe it's just like a biological thing where you're just evolutionarily more inclined to pay attention to the things that are going to be um you know a threat to Mm -hmm. you right as opposed to the things that are just like you know going to support you and like right like i I do feel like you know even even whether you're an instagram influencer or an institution right people in media know that the thing that's like going to get the most engagement and the most interaction is basically like the shit that trump says right like the shithole countries right and everyone will retweet it and everyone will be talking about it right and like it just seems to me like it's just 
never going to be because we know these various things about what we like to click on and the sensationalism and how much that sells, right? Like, does it not feel like somewhat futile to say, oh, let's all just try to emphasize our commonalities with people who are in our out groups? Yeah, well, so they're just making the message, you know, let's just see that how we're in, in common. Eventually, people may understand that. But I think there's a lot of really powerful emotions that that do emphasize some degree of, of commonality. Right. I mean, I, so I, I mentioned something involving love and uh, there's all sorts of joy, but there can also be negative emotions that, that tie us together. It's an empirical question. What works better and grief uh, is something that Democrats and Republicans can both feel. I, I have heard feelings like, oh, this is kind of uh, this. Nothing can, can work. Uh, the reason that I'm doing this is that I am hopeful. Yes. I, at some level, I'm fighting fire with fire. Right. I mean, there's an emotional problem. I'm fighting it with just different emotions and, or or emotions packaged in different ways. But I do think that those can go viral when done well. Uh, and then on kind of the algorithm side, one possibility, and it raises all sorts of First Amendment questions. Again, people are listening who have law degrees. Talk to me. You know, there's a question about algorithms and what should be emphasized or not. Often we talk about kind of the, the real extremes, you know, totally fake content things that bots are making and you know should it be on the plat a platform at all or not but a lot of content is just from everyday people who are just like you know the other side's terrible and you know they're, they're, this is you're just venting yeah right yeah and you know that should definitely stay on the platform but how high Which should way? it rise yeah in an out al- you know an algorithm prioritizes and an algorithm can choose to emphasize things or de-emphasize them and if we think that divisiveness or propensity to spread hate or whatever the metric is, is something that we should ratchet back, that is something that potentially a social media company could do. And so some of those messages would not necessarily go as far. So are you in the work that you're trying to do and, the, and your volunteers are trying to do, are you trying to reach out to those companies that own those algorithms and be like, hey, like maybe you could tweak it so that it's like not as not as uh like weighing the super controversial things the highest uh well that would be a a goal right admittedly uh, right thinking about depolarization the way that i'm talking about is very early i mean tip the the general idea of how to deal with depolarization is to have people talk to each other in small groups Mm -hmm. so i've barely touched on that right and so i'm talking about it in a, in a very different uh, framework. And, and so I would certainly hope that there would be the, the capacity to do something like that in a reasonable way. And, and uh, Facebook does have a, a, a group that focuses on kind of, uh, I think it's called the Civic Integrity Group. They do have people on that with, with backgrounds who would be very favorably disposed to using Jonathan Haidt's methods and focusing on emotions and commonality to try to reduce polarization. But right, I mean, that that takes uh, some institutional oomph. You know, not, not that we're going to have or make billions of dollars every quarter or something, but <laughs> uh, you know, that at least it would be a respectable institution that's saying this is very important. And there are all sorts of groups that are trying to interact with Facebook on, and other social media companies on other topics, pri- data privacy and 
mental health concerns, especially with teenagers and, and whatnot. And polarization can be one of the topics that, that gets a lot of engagement. There's a lot of topics that we talk about on this podcast that are, you know, basically issues where we're like, okay, here's an issue like, you know, the military industrial complex, environmentalism, like, you know, eating meat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always basically have, we have these like big macro level problems, Mm -hmm. right? And polarization, I think definitely fits in that camp. I think the one thing that I find frustrating and I feel like like just general, like generationally we find frustrating Mm -hmm. is that it feels like there's so little that we can tangibly do to address any of those things. Like the, the, the thing that the one that felt most satisfying to me was our veganism episode where it's like, this is a clear wrong, like, you know, the meat industry. So stop eating meat. Right. It's like such a like satisfying solution. Like in your mind, is there a more satisfying answer than just like, Oh, we should talk to people tweet. And you know, like, you know what I mean? Like it feel, it doesn't feel like a satisfying answer. Sure. Oh yeah. I I guess it's hard to know what would be satisfying. My degrees in public policy. I worked at a think tank for three years. Yeah. So, I mean, public policy questions I could, I could deal with, and you know, what can individuals do on most public policy issues, unless it's local, is fairly minimal. Right. I mean, it's elect the people you agree with, and you know, try to get groups together to kind of have influence groups. Right. To, to push something with affective polarization. In the past, at least, right. It's a there, there is this kind of confusion. What can I do that is useful? Right. Because I'll, okay, I'll talk to a group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Now what? Right. Because so, you have no idea. Like you can't walk away and know. Oh, my talking to this group had X, Y, and Z effect. The hope, and I guess this will resonate for some people and not for others, is that with my framing of getting large megaphones in society to broadcast messages and stories that can reduce polarization. And for people who do have audiences to influence those audiences in certain ways, people who who care can have various roles that seem more practical because it can be, well, if we can identify the institutional target, go to someone you know at that institution and encourage them to say these certain messages or build a group that can influence certain institutions to start saying things or tangibly yourself you can go and and make some content that works so so to me as a strategy consultant right i think about well how do we develop some kind of volunteer structure and and leadership and direction that people can go in where they do feel like they're having some impact yes when there's some ad that goes out or a sermon that's that said it is hard to know exactly how much impact that is having and there's you know, then lots of research that could be done uh, by professors who deal with focus groups and A-B testing of messages and figuring out what impacts AFPO and not and who it should be targeted. But at least that is something where I would hope enough people think that it's plausible that it can work. Most uh, There's an idea that 3.5% of people in a country who are, part of, who are actively part of a movement makes it that's kind of like the tipping point so it means if you know one out of 30 people or so think that they're doing something useful then we got what we need so hopefully one out of 30 people do feel that they're being productive with one of those activities we have to think about motivation yeah 
throughout this entire process. So there's going to be a limited number of people who are probably motivated to spend a couple hours talking about issues to depolarize each other. Right. Uh, I know there's going to be a limited number of people who would want to volunteer in certain capacities, right? People have a lot of things going on in their lives. Totally. But some people would hopefully hear this and or you know, other messages like that and say, whoa, I, I never thought that my talents as an advertising executive would have anything to do with this. Or I never thought that my friendship with you know a priest would be useful for this. Oh, okay. Well, cool maybe this is a different aspect of my life that I never tied to depolarization can actually be useful. Right. It does make it more like relevant to people and like spark some of that. Yeah. That, yeah. Because sometimes it's as easy as literally making an introduction. Like, mm -hmm. I know this person. You should talk to them. And that's really how a lot of things would start. Yeah. I guess that is really how everything's about your network. Like that's like how anything works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, there's, there's some strategy behind it. Like why you, We'd want to talk to this person in the network, but right, as right. soon as that's established, then then right, these individual connections and relationships yeah. are really important. I so, yeah, so I do think that's actually a, definitely a more satisfying answer in terms of that like whole like oh like what am I supposed to do? That is actually like not something that people necessarily think of. I was like oh you could have an ad or you could like you know have all of these like different ideas for how to spread depolarization. Well, James, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Uh, I'm curious as to whether, because you mentioned uh, memes earlier as like a way to, like a media form to like bring people together. Um, I think you were just like listing them though. You're like, no, yeah. I, I, memes done well uh, <laughs> with the right emotional messaging, the right topics can certainly work in, in some ways. I'm, yeah. Kind of formally creating memes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to know what is a meme versus just a picture that has a simple message on it. But that's mm. basically a meme. Yeah. Essentially nowadays, when you mentioned memes, I thought about when like all of the Epstein stuff was going on. And I saw, I like starkly remember this meme of like the two arms coming together and like linking arms. And it's like Democrats, Republicans, and in the middle is like Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> i guess my answer is no comment uh, yeah. <laughs> i'm not asking you to comment on whether i've seen killed himself but i was like i wonder if humor can be one of those like those emotions yeah, that well, bring people I, together I, I do think humor can work S sometimes uh, for instance when we're talking about resentment yeah uh and kind of sometimes the, the higher status or greater uh, emotional or i mean uh, economic gains uh, recruit to people on the coast and college degrees uh, sometimes it, it may start by kind of poking fun at one side and kind of right. pulling one side down a little bit uh, because right i mean there are things that can be made fun of probably that aren't too harmful you know some some yoga and lattes or, or whatever <laughs> you know lay some groundwork you know right i i, I see these things too yeah. uh and so I, I could see some value in it. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite meme? <laughs> <laughs> I have a favorite. That's that's like 
asking to pick a favorite child. Yeah, but <laughs> the thing is, right? I, I, I'm very much a strategist who sees memes as a useful tool, but I'm not really a meme fanatic. You're not a regular it. consumer of memes. N- not that I, I, not really, no. <laughs> but you know, I often will work with college students or high schoolers, and I'm like, you guys know about memes. These are the messages that I want to produce. I think this is a useful way to get it out. Let's create some. That's so funny because Luke is like the biggest memer on the planet. You're right. <laughs> so you make, yeah. good, you, make, you make a good counterpart. That's yeah, so right. He loves the memes and I'm the one who's creating them. <laughs> That's hilarious. Shout out to Luke. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's listening right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So thanks again so much for sitting down with us. Um, I know that you mentioned your email at some point in this podcast. We want you go ahead and say it again. Just so sure. people know how to talk to you. Yeah. I, I think the easiest email for, for me is james at redbluetogether.org. Redbluetogether.org used to be a website, but there, <laughs> so you won't find much on, on that. <laughs> But you will find James. Uh, but yes, you'll, you'll find me if you email. And on that same token, if you heard anything that you liked in this podcast or anything that you vehemently disagreed with or you really hate James or me or Isabel, um, shoot us a, a DM or a tweet or a comment on, at I'm the villain pod on Twitter or Instagram or our inbox is open at I'm the villain pod at gmail.com. Uh, bye. <laughs>